couple of uh, weeks ago, I was listening to the, to the radio, and a reporter asked people to share the first word that came into their mind when they thought of politics. Uh, dirty, replied one person. Corrupt, said another. Uh, slimy, came a third. Uh, unethical, was another response. And I, I suspect that if uh, a reporter was to go through uh, Christians during this election year and ask a similar question, uh, they might come up with a similar answer. As one young woman in, in our congregation recently told me, she said, you know, I just feel cynical about the, the whole thing, about the elections, the candidates. I just don't want anything to do with it. And a father I know uh, encouraged his daughter to, to spend her summer between uh, college and medical school working for a campaign. He said it doesn't matter what campaign. It's a good way to, to serve. It would be a great experience. And she wanted nothing of it. She uh, said she had no interest in that, couldn't imagine spending a summer that way. Now, I, I imagine there's a lot of good reasons why you wouldn't want to spend your summer that way. And uh, perhaps she wasn't called to it. Perhaps her gifts didn't fit it. But I think a possible reason why so many uh, Christians have decided to sort of opt out of the political process is that the church has not really offered a theological vision for engaging the public square. Uh, We've not really offered compelling biblical and doctrinal reasons for getting involved in serving our community through politics. Is there a biblical case for engaging the messy world of politics? Well, I believe there is. Jeremiah, as Ray just said, told the exiles in Babylon, seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you into. Theologian Wayne Grudem, in his book on politics and government, says, he quotes Jeremiah 29.7, and then he says, if believers are to seek to bring good to such a society that must include bringing good to its government, as Daniel did. The true welfare of such a city will be advanced through governmental laws and politics that are consistent with God's teachings in the Bible. City Councilman Chris Woodhull says that one of the reasons he went into politics was because it was a response of a call that he felt to seek the welfare of the city. He said the goal of politics is to build a place that works for everybody, a real place, a community with social equity, a community where everyone has economic access, a community that is economically sound and livable. In other words, politics is uh, shalom-making. Now, what are we talking about when we speak of politics? The word can be used a lot of different ways. Uh, The Oxford Dictionary defines politics as, quote, the activities involved in getting and using power in public life and being able to influence decisions that affect a country or a society. And the English word uh, comes from a Greek word that means the affairs of a city. So we could think of politics as a way to influence decisions in a city so that people in the city flourish. Now here's another uh, definition of politics. Politics is the process through which societies determine who gets what as well as when in how they get it. So politics has a direct impact on how a community cares for one another. 
And so if we care about our neighbors and our community, we, we need to care about politics. There are a lot of different ways that we can serve the community through the political process. Uh, some are as simple as voting, uh, serving on the board of your homeowners association, serving on your child's parent-teacher organization, uh, campaigning for a candidate you like, writing letters, attending a public meeting, running for an elective office like county commission or city council or school board or even mayor, house, or senate or beyond. Now what I want to do next is, is go over with you a number of reasons why Christians should engage in politics. First, Christians should engage in politics because of God's command. Uh, many times in this series, we've gone back to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, where God says that we are made in his, di- in his image, and he tells us to take dominion over all of the earth. A lot of different responsibilities flow out of this command. Uh, in modern societies, having dominion over all the earth means bringing the influence of Christ to bear on the many different institutions that make up modern society, and one of those is government. Uh, Now, dominion is not domination. Jesus is the model uh, of having dominion. He, He did so with sacrificial servant leadership. Second reason Christians should engage in politics is because Jesus is Lord. Paul opens up his letter to the believers in the city of Colossa by reminding them Christ is not just Lord over their church, over their family, or over their personal life, but by reminding them that Christ is Lord over all of life. Colossians 1.16, For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So one of the reasons that we engage in the political process is because Christ is Lord over all of life, and that includes politics. And if we limit our involvement in the city just to our families and our churches, then we deny the all-encompassing lordship of Christ over all of life. Third, Christians should engage in politics because government is a gift from God. Paul explains the God-given nature of government when he writes the Christians living in the city of Rome. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. The one in authority is God's servant for good. The authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. That's Romans 13. So if God establishes government, and if those who serve in government are God's servants for good, then it follows that serving in government is one way a Christian can seek the peace of the city. Fourth reason. Christians should engage in politics because the political process provides an opportunity to love our neighbor. Good governments help people live better lives. Uh, That's why Paul in 1 Timothy 2 urges Christians to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life. In other words, good governments create laws that help people live peaceful, shalom-based lives. And bad governments hinder that. 
Uh, Nate Kelly, who's a political scientist in our congregation, he put it like this to me in an email. He said, the well-being of both ourselves and our neighbors is heavily influenced by politics. Since politics is the process of determining who gets what, when, and how, then participating in that process is directly contributing to how our neighbors are treated. Fifth reason. Christians should engage in politics because of the example of those who have gone before us. Uh, Think of the Old Testament examples. King Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel over the ruler of a whole province of Babylon, and he becomes an advisor to the king. Joseph becomes a high-ranking cabinet member in Pharaoh's government. Nehemiah serves in a position of high responsibility before King Artaxerxes in Persia. Mordecai was second in rank to King Ahasuerus of Persia. And Esther had significant influence over his policies. Old Testament prophets write letters to the leaders of the nation surrounding Israel. And the early church carries on the tradition. Christians were primarily responsible for outlawing infanticide, child abandonment, and abortion in the Roman Empire. It was Christians that outlawed the brutal death battles in which thousands of gladiators died. They outlawed the cruel punishment of brandishing the faces of criminals. They instituted prison reforms such as the segregating of male and female prisoners. They stopped the practice of human sacrifice among the the, the Irish. They outlawed pedophilia. They, They worked for the granting of property rights and protections to women. They worked for banning polygamy, prohibiting the burning alive of widows in India, outlawing the cruel practice of binding young women's feet in China, persuading government officials to begin a system of public schools in Germany. And even though it's well known that many Christians did support slavery in America, many others worked to abolish it. Christians should also engage in politics because it is a possible means of advancing the kingdom of God. Following the tradition of the Hebrew prophets, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God, Matt 4.17. He says that the kingdom of God will bring healing in both the spiritual and the physical realms, Luke 4. So when Christians participate in political processes and influence laws that work for the healing of society, they are pointing towards the kingdom of God. Now, there was a document uh, that came out in 2004 called For the Health of the Nation. It was written by evangelical scholars and commissioned by the National Association of Evangelicals. And it argues that Christ's teaching on the kingdom of God is an important basis for Christian civic engagement. Uh, Jesus announced the arrival of God's kingdom, it says. This kingdom would be marked by justice, peace, forgiveness, restoration, and healing for all. We know that we must wait for God to bring about the fullness of the kingdom at Christ's return. But in this interim, the Lord calls the church to speak prophetically to society and work for the renewal and reform of its structures. Let me give you one last reason why Christians should be engaged in politics. It's because leadership matters. 
God has built into the world a certain order, and his leaders are a part of that order. He gives leaders to the church, to, to, to the home, to the family, to society, so the communities thrive. Israel was supposed to choose wise leaders and, and call them to govern fairly. Proverbs exhorts the political leaders of Israel, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. And when Israel's leaders failed to lead well, the prophets said that, the, that they were condemned and that the whole nation was struggling because of their failure. Now, America is not Israel, I realize that, but God's principles still apply. Communities flourish under strong leadership and they decline under poor leadership. The old Baptist preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, used to tell young preachers when they went into the pastorate, remember, a fish rots from the head down. It's true in cities, too. Mary Tarwater's father, Richmond Flowers, was the attorney general of Alabama from 1963 to 1967. And he is best known for his opposition to Governor George Wallace's policy of racial segregation. And his family paid a bitter price uh, for that stand. In retirement, Mr. Flowers wrote a book called Bitter Harvest. And he reflects on the history of the civil rights movement in the South. And his conclusion is this. Alabama suffered a fundamental failure in leadership during the civil rights revolution. The failure contributed significantly to the manner in which the state responded to the demand for social change. The transition would have been less disruptive and its consequences less harmful if leadership had been more insightful and prudent. So what he's saying is that the lives of thousands of people, even a whole country, were hurt because of bad leadership. Now you obviously don't have to be a Christian to be a good leader, but Christians should look for opportunities to provide good leadership for their communities. Not all of us are called to do that, some of us are. What I do notice in myself and in other Christians is while we, we may have decided that politics is too dirty to be involved with, we uh, do not have a problem criticizing politicians and complaining about them and, and sometimes speaking very disrespectfully uh, about them. First uh, Timothy 2 makes it very clear we are to pray for those in authority. We are to respect them whether we like them or not. I thank God for both uh, Mr. Obama and, 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 uh, and I thank God for Mr. Romney. They have more courage than I ever would have to do what they've tried to do to run for that office. Uh, as Edmund Burke once said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. So I don't think it's enough that we just complain about the idiots in Washington. Uh, I, I think some of us need to get involved. Now, I want to spend the, the rest of the sermon talking about how we should engage in politics as Christians, whether it's a very simple process of just maybe you're having a, a cup of coffee tomorrow talking about the election, maybe you're, uh, you're involved at a deeper level, but what are, what are some guidelines for Christians as we involve the political process? First, serve Christ as Lord. We are followers of Christ before we're Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians. Our first and foremost allegiance is to Him. 
we're accountable to Christ first, our constituency second, and that means that winning is not the most important thing. And for the few people that I know that have gone into politics and see that as their vocation, this is always the most difficult uh, part of it, is that when it gets down to it, and at the end of the day, when a lot is at stake, it seems like it's very easy for winning to become Lord instead of Christ. And I heard a story this week about a, a man who was running for an office in our city, and he uh, decided that he would not go negative in the final uh, weeks of the campaign, and uh, he, he lost. But he decided that that just was not consistent with his commitment to follow Christ. Second principle that might guide us, trust in a sovereign God. You know, one of the things that we've got to stop doing, whether we're on the left or on the right, is saying things like the country is, is going to collapse if he or she gets elected. That's not helpful. It's not true. Uh, and it, it is an insult to God. Our trust is not in who wins Tuesday. Our trust is in God, and, and he will get us through. Third guideline, love your neighbor. Um, you think, you know, if you're going to blog about the election, if you're going to talk about the election, if you're going to write editorials about the election, love your neighbor. Mark 12, 29. One of the, the best examples of that, and I really, I really hope as Christians we can inject love back into the political discourse. It's totally gone. But one of the best examples of this comes from South Africa after uh, apartheid with uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And uh, you may or may not know this story, but obviously there was tremendous wounds in the country. There was uh, 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 horrific uh, crimes and abuse. And rather than just dust it all under the rug, uh, the leaders of South Africa said, you know, if our country's ever going to have a hope of living together white and black, we need to expose the horrific crimes that happened and seek reconciliation. I don't know many countries that have tried to do that. But they established something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and you can read about it in a book Bishop Tutu wrote. But they spent years bringing people out, trying them for their crimes, having them ask forgiveness, and having the people who were oppressed forgive them. And Bishop Tutu put at the core of his political philosophy a a, a word, an African word, um, Ubuntu, which is very difficult to translate, but it speaks of understanding that we are all in this together and that because of that we need to be kind and generous and compassionate towards each other. And it seems to me that our society has totally lost any concept of of Ubuntu. He says, A person with Ubuntu knows that he or she belongs in a greater whole and is dismissed when others are humiliated or diminished, when others are tortured or oppressed or treated as if they are less than who they are. And the way the archbishop lived out his commitment to Ubuntu meant that uh, he loved both the enemies and his friends, and it led to at least some healing in a nation that had horrific abuse. Another principle for engaging in politics, walk humbly. Christians believe that God has revealed eternal truth in the Scripture. But God has not revealed the right way to apply these truths in every complex policy decision. 
For example, God, uh, good Christians may agree or probably do agree that a good government will care for the weaker members of the community. But good Christians may seriously disagree about the best way to do this. The doctrine of the fall should make us wary of being absolutely certain about our political convictions. Sin, the Bible teaches, has weakened our minds. Paul says we all see in a mirror dimly. And so that means that I can be wrong in the political convictions that I hold. Now, given the tricky nature of applying God's eternal truth to complex political questions, it follows that we can be faithful to God's truth while making political compromises. And this is something that I think a lot of Christians don't understand, and it keeps them out of politics. They know that politics involves compromise, and they feel like if they're going to follow Christ, they can't do that. Two political writers, Stephen Monzema and Mark Rogers, uh, address this. They say, God's word is truth. Biblical principles are absolute. But our applications of God's truth are often fumbling and shrouded in the fog produced by extremely complex situations, missing facts, and the pressures of limited time. All this means that when one is asked to compromise by accepting only some of what one is seeking to achieve, one is not being asked to compromise absolute principles of right and wrong. The last guideline that I would suggest is disagree respectfully. Here are a couple of titles from recent books on current affairs uh, by conservative writers. Arguing with Idiots, How to Stop Small Minds in Big Government, Gangster Government, Barack Obama and the New Washington Thugocracy, Demonic, How the Liberal Mob is Endangering America. Now here are titles of a few books on current affairs by liberal writers. Pitchforks and Torches, the worst of the worst, from Beck, Bill, and Bush to Palin and other posturing Republicans. Wing Nuts, How the Lunatic Fringe is Hijacking America. The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Ruined Government, Enriched Themselves, and Beggared the Nation. I think that just reflects our culture has no capacity to disagree respectfully in these things. Concerned about the harsh tone of all this rhetoric, a Republican businessman and political advisor named Mark DeMoss began the Civility Project in January of 2009. And DeMoss asked his friend, Democratic lobbyist and former Clinton aide, Lanny Davis, to help him. And so the two friends wrote all 100 United States senators, all 435 members of the House, and all 50 state governors, and asked them to sign a simple pledge. And there were three lines on the letter. I will be civil in my public discourse and behavior. I will be respectful to others, whether or not I agree with them. I will stand against incivility when I see it. And of the 585 uh, leaders who received an invitation to sign the pledge, three responded. DeMoss shut down the civility project two years later. And he told a reporter that he'd been criticized via email with words that he could not use in a phone call. There's no excuse for a Christian 
to be caught up in this. Uh, the scriptures teach that all human beings are made in the image of God. The Apostle Paul declares in his sermon to the Athenians that all human beings are children of the same Father. And so everyone is worthy of our respect, even when we disagree with them. Now, I realize not all of us are called to be involved in politics at, at deep levels. Uh, I, I appreciate that. We're talking about different ways we can seek the peace of the city, and we all have different gifts, different passions. But I want to encourage those of you that feel a calling, feel a stirring, would like to make a difference in this way, I want to affirm that in you as quite possibly a God-given call to serve through politics. It's a valid way of serving your community. A few weeks ago, I was talking with one of you, and and you said kind of in an offhanded way, you know, I'm going to take a couple days off from work and go knock on doors. And you said, you know, I shouldn't even have told you you that. You you seemed kind of embarrassed about it. And I said, why are you so embarrassed? And and, uh, your response was, he said, I don't think people would understand this here. And, and what, I, what I tried to say to you was, I think we would. I think, I think that's a valuable way to serve your Lord if you're doing it for the right reasons. I think he's passionate about door knocking in the rain because God's word's alive in his heart and he's seeking the peace of the city through the political process. Well, I'll give the last word to John Calvin. The reformer, writing in his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says, doubtless with some exaggeration, that serving in politics is, quote, a calling not only holy and lawful before God, but also the most sacred and by far most honorable of all callings in the whole life of mortal men. Let's pray.